morning, everyone. It's definitely a real privilege and honor to be here. I was actually local here and saved at Grace Community Church in 2007 through the FOF ministry. Um, so I very much understand and appreciate the ecosystem we have between Grace Community Church, TMC, and TMS, and what a wonderful blessing that is. I went to UCLA, and that was my dream school. That's where I wanted to go. But if I had to do it all over again, knowing what I know now, there's no question this is where I would want to be. So each one of you have a tremendous privilege to be here, and I would urge you and encourage you to take advantage of that and make the most of your time here. And yet even as you live here, even as we are exposed to such godly men, such godly teachers and preachers and speakers, they can bring the words from their mouth to your ear, but they can't bring the word from your ear to your heart. And we know as that we grow as Christians, I can tell you even myself in the short time I, since I've been saved in 2007, the Lord has done so much in my life, and yet I know the war against sin from the inside, the war against the world, the war in the spiritual realms never gets easier. We are constantly battling. And I would submit to you this morning that as a part of that battle, there's going to be one absolutely important ingredient that's going to help get you through. There's going to be absolutely one important necessity that's going to help you grow as a man or a woman of Christ. And it's not going to be how many times you attend church. It's not going to be how many times you simply just open the Bible and read, though that too is important. It's not even going to be just how often you pray, because that too can be treated like a checklist. It is going to be your love for Christ, your love for your Savior, your love for the one who died for you. And so in this life, we need to make sure that we have proper priorities. We need to make sure that not simply just being spiritual is our priority, but simply that we are to love Christ and let everything be an expression from that. As a part of uh, one of our fellowship groups at Grace Church, we were reading a book called Killing Sin Habits by Stuart Scott. And he said, if we fail to establish such proper priorities, we will end up doing things in our own strength and become legalistic and give up. And while the teachers we are exposed to certainly would not teach us legalism, it certainly is an easy temptation to fall into, is it not? We have a lot of head knowledge, but we can turn it into just simply head knowledge without really applying these truths to our heart. And so this morning, I'm going to take you into the book of Philippians. We're going to take a look at chapter 1. I love this book of Philippians. It is often referred to as the epistle of joy. It's because you see the word joy showing up so often, so many times in, in this book. But it reveals something about Paul that is so essential. You know, when we think about Paul, there are a lot of thoughts that may come to our mind. We may think of Paul the great apostle. We may think of Paul as the wonderfully deep and rich theologian, right? He wrote the book of Romans, an incredibly deep treatise on the gospel. We may think of the man who's been through so many persecutions, so many places, so many churches. But what the book of Philippians really reveals, and especially even as you open up into this first chapter, is that more than any of those things, though true, Paul was a man who just loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this Christian life is never easy, but if we are fueled by a true love for Christ, 
We will endure. We will grow. We will glorify God. And we will even know what true joy is. True joy in Christ. And so in examining this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we're going to find four defining characteristics of his love for Christ. Four defining characteristics of his love for Christ. Now, you may know the setting of the book of Philippians. Um, If you don't, uh, Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He's awaiting trial to see Caesar. He had been taken up there from Jerusalem. And he's writing to a Philippian church that had been partners with him in the gospel. You find that in chapter 1, verse 5, where he thanks them for their partnership from the very first day to that point. In fact, they loved him so much that they sent Epaphroditus up to minister to him. And Epaphroditus nearly dies in the process. So he sends Epaphroditus back with his letter to encourage the Philippians to a joyful pursuit of Christ, while also giving them an update on his imprisonment situation. So, like I said, in this chapter, we're going to find four characteristics just from the life of Paul. Four characteristics of a man who loves Christ. And the first of those four is that his love for Christ is stronger than personal afflictions. His love for Christ is stronger than personal afflictions. We're going to go straight to verse 12. After Paul's introduction to the church, after his opening prayers, he goes to verse 12, and he's going to give an update on his imprisonment situation. Now, what we're going to do today, we're going to cover verses 12 all the way to 30. Now, that's a lot of verses, I understand. And normally, we would just take a few verses and dive really deep into this. But what I want you to see is when you take a look at the whole first chapter, in its entirety, you're going to see a very important connecting thread that I trust will speak very powerfully into your heart. And so when we look at verse 12, Paul is now giving an update on his imprisonment, and he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become very well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. As we take a look at this passage, we see Paul mentioning his circumstances right there in verse 12, saying, my circumstances have turned out for the greater good. What are those circumstances? Well, he's been imprisoned. He is in prison, and if you think about Paul being the preeminent apostle to the Gentiles, the man who would start all these Gentile churches, responsible for nearly half of the books that we have in the New Testament, Now that he's in prison, there is a natural concern that would come over believers about the gospel ministry, about its spread. But this is a reminder to us that it's not us who do the work, but God. And Paul is pointing this out. It's not that my imprisonment has hindered the gospel, but it has actually caused the gospel to spread in a greater way. And verse 13 says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become known throughout the whole praetorian guard. You get close to the end of the book of Philippians, he even mentions that everyone in Caesar's house greets you. His imprisonment has led to the greater spread of the gospel, 
not only through the fellow brothers who are out there preaching, but also even within Caesar's household. But what's so important is that his imprisonment is for the cause of Christ. It was mentioned just earlier that the world is growing increasingly hostile against Christianity. And we don't know when or if there's going to be a time very soon in which we may face the threat of imprisonment or fines or some sort of legal action just on the basis of standing true for God. And as you go out into the world and you face these threats, it is a reminder to us that, as Paul said, my imprisonment is for the cause of Christ. If you're ever persecuted or blamed for any reason, make sure it's for the cause of Christ. Make sure it's not because you're a traitor, it's not because you broke some laws, it's not because you're slandering, it's not because you're fighting, it's not because you're, you're, you're being, uh, you're, you're being a, a bad citizen in any way, but it is strictly for the cause of Christ. But when we look at, starting in verse 14, here's how the gospel has been spreading. He says, most of the brethren trust in the Lord because of my imprisonment. So not only is his imprisonment actually leading to the greater progress of the gospel, but fellow brothers in Christ are actually encouraged when he's in prison. They're not discouraged. They're not worried. They're, they're not standing back and saying, oh, well, what's going to happen to me now? This is not like the disciples when Jesus Christ went to the cross and they were scattered. Rather, they're saying that brothers were encouraged to speak the word of God without fear. And then from verses 15 through 17, we hear about those two groups. Now, I know you've read this passage many times. You guys know this passage. These two groups, some, some were preaching out of envy and greed, seeking to do Paul harm. Some out of goodwill, some out of true love. But what's interesting here is that we, we see evidence of division. We see evidences of people that actually want to afflict Paul. Now, I would remind you, this is not the same situation as Galatians 1, when Paul says, even if an angel or anyone else comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to what we uh, had preached to you, they are to be accursed. This is not the same situation. Because I remind you again, in verse 14, he refers to them as brethren. These are fellow believers. And there is an unfortunate truth that even within the body of Christ, there are going to be tensions that come up. There are going to be people that speak evilly about you. We, we know even in the e evangelical world how many people might not be so appreciative of John MacArthur's ministry. They might not like some of the things that he teaches. They might even say some things that are negative, and, and yet they're a true part of the body of Christ. They're, they're preaching a true gospel. Yeah, but it is a reminder to us that, that even as this is happening, even as this division is occurring, of course, if you have an opportunity to reconcile with those who are dividing against you or those that you have divided against, you should reconcile. But look at what Paul's reaction is. Verse 18, he says, what then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, look, I don't care what their motives are, Christ is proclaimed. You know what was more important than his own pride? You know what was more important than Paul's own name? You know what was more important than the fact that he was being slandered or spoken evilly about? It's the fact that he took rest and comfort in the fact that Christ was being proclaimed. Because that is the only way to salvation. None of the rest matters. We must decrease while Christ increases. And so we must remember that Christ is more important, the cause of Christ, 
our love for Christ is stronger than any personal afflictions we may face. Some of us were so tempted to start slandering even our own brothers and sisters when we hear that, they're, that they have something against us. Resist that. Place Christ as preeminent. Make your love for him more and most important. And just pray that while you ha- would have an opportunity to reconcile, that, that Christ would be glorified through that individual no matter where they go. And that is exactly what Paul takes comfort in. But Paul's joy, as he expresses it here, is not simply just for the present. It's not just simply for the present time. In verse 18, he says, I rejoice. But at the end of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. So he has a cause for rejoicing now, but he also has a cause for rejoicing in the future. And that leads us to the second point. The second characteristic of Paul's love for Christ. The first was that his love for Christ is stronger than personal afflictions. The second that his love for Christ is stronger than the threat of death. Stronger than the threat of death. We get to verse 18. At the end of verse 18, once again, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the interpretive question here that we have to wrestle with is in verse 19, what does Paul mean by deliverance? You see, if you've taken Greek and you can see the Greek New Testament, you'll know that the word for deliverance is the same word used for salvation. So it can mean Deliverance in a physical sense, or it can mean salvation, or it can mean deliverance through some sort of situation. And the question here, well, what is he referring to? Because if you read commentaries, they're going to point in all kinds of different directions. Well, I think the key is to look at the rest of the passage, and I think it's going to become more clear what it is he is referring to. Now, I remind you that the Philippians that he's writing to were referred to as partners of the gospel. So they knew what Paul was doing. They were prayer partners with him. So in verse 20, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 19, when he says, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he is confident of his deliverance. So first question is, well, what exactly were the Philippians praying for? Well, we might get a couple of hints from a couple of other letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. See, he didn't just write this letter to the Philippians. He also wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and a letter to the Colossians as well. And if you were to take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul is going to remind the Ephesians of the importance of prayer. But he's also going to ask them to pray for him as well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 reads, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. But look at this. Now he's going to ask about himself. Verse 19, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, writes, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 
praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. This deliverance that Paul is asking for is not salvation. He already has that. When you go down and see verse 21, he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. You get down to verse 23. He talks about departing from this world and being with Christ. His salvation here is not in question, so he is not talking about his spiritual salvation. I would also submit to you that he's not talking about a release from prison. You're kind of getting a hint of these, th this from, just from those verses that I read, but take a look at the end of verse 20. He has this desire that Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So what Paul is saying is that his desire, this deliverance that he's describing, has to do with Christ being exalted, whether he lives or dies. Either way. And from those verses that you, we saw in Ephesians and Colossians, it's clear that as he is about to, as he is awaiting trial, as he is about to meet Caesar, he wants the boldness, he wants the work of the Spirit, he wants the prayers of the saints to make sure he remains faithful to that gospel message and to proclaim to the great Caesar, the great king of the Roman Empire, that there is a greater God than him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wants that boldness. Jesus, when he was teaching the disciples in Mark 13, 9 through 11, even reminded them that you're going to be turned over to the courts, you're going to be flogged in the synagogues, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And then verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. As bold as Paul was, as strong as his faith was, he knew that he was completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and God for that power to remain strong for the gospel. So whether by life or death, and this would be shocking to people in this world today, life or death, I mean, life is everything to the people in this world. To, to the people who don't know Jesus Christ, life is everything. To die is frightening. My wife and I, we both are the only believers in our families. And we have tried to minister to them. We have tried to share the gospel with them. The sad reality is that we have some members that just don't want to talk about death and get very upset when the topic comes up. But it is very clear they are absolutely frightened of it. You know, and millions and millions, and much more than that, get poured into all kinds of solutions to try to prolong our lives. People want to live longer. Right? But when we look at this passage here, Paul ends by saying, whether by life or by death, and that really kind of leads us into this third point, th this third characteristic of a Christian's love for Christ. The first was, his love for Christ is stronger than personal afflictions. The second is that it is stronger than the threat of death. And this third point is that it is stronger than his earthly treasures. It is stronger than his earthly treasures. Take a look at verse 21. Verse 21 reads, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now we just read about Paul saying, I want Christ to be exalted whether by life or by death. That showed that his love for Christ was more important than his life. But we see here there's a transcendent reality that is in the lives of true believers. In verse 21, he, he explains this, this sentiment that whether by life or by death, I want Christ to be exalted because he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's a popular verse. We see it on a lot of signs. We see it printed in a lot of places. Uh, I worry sometimes that we see it so often, we say it so often that we can become inoculated to its power. And we're going to come back to this verse before I'm done, but let's see what he means in this verse just in this immediate context. He says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Paul is in a bind. He, he, he's in a debate. He, he's, he's caught between uh, the proverbial rock and the hard place. But th this, this debate, this dilemma uh, of whether to stay or whether to go, it's not because heaven has almost equal glory with earth. It's not because that, you know, there are pluses and minuses to both sides, and he's worried about giving up certain things on earth, but he's debating against some of the positives that he's going to get in heaven. All right, it's not that at all. There is absolutely no debate when comparing the two places. I mean, look at verse 23. He says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And in the Greek, it's, it, literally, it is better by far. I mean, to, to put it in our terms, it, it, it's better by a mile. There is no comparison. You want to compare living in this life to, to living with, with God in heaven? There is absolutely no comparison. It is better by far to depart and be with Christ. There is absolutely no debate. Paul's debate, though, the only reason why he's caught in both directions is revealed in verse 24 when he says, Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. But what we see here is that Paul's life, while his life is characterized by Christ, it is characterized by the purposes of Christ, living for Christ, loving Christ, sharing Christ, teaching and preaching Christ, he knows that there is something so much better awaiting for him at the end. The only reason why he wants to stick around is for the benefit of his fellow believers, the benefit of the church. That's the only reason why he wants to stick around. Now, when we think of heaven, though, what is it that he was looking forward to? You know, a lot of Christians I meet will often say, you know what, I, I don't need to hear about what awaits us in heaven. I, I'll just be happy to be there. You've probably heard people say that. Maybe you've said it, right? You know, I, I, it doesn't matter what rewards we get. It's not about the rewards. It's just about being in heaven. Well, I appreciate that sentiment, but the Bible actually talks about rewards. So if we say that we're going to ignore everything that, uh, any, everything that has to do with the rewards, we're saying that those portions of the Bible that talks about rewards, we're saying that's not important. 
course, we wouldn't want to say that. All scripture is God-breathed. It's all important. And we look at what the Bible has to say about rewards. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. Peter picks up on the same theme. When he writes his, the, the letter of 1 Peter, well, what does he say in, in verse 3, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But here's the reason. Here's the purpose. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And Peter was writing to a group that was concerned about persecution at the hands of Nero. How does Peter encourage them? By reminding them of their treasures. Furthermore, we have verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I had the pleasure of traveling with a number of people from the Faith Builders Fellowship Group. We went to Greece and Turkey. And I remember going to a place called Santorini Island, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. We went up to this high point and we're overlooking this, the, the beautiful Greek architecture on these green rolling hills, some of the deepest blue oceans I've ever seen. The, the sky was clear. I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous. And I remember standing there going, Lord, I can't imagine anything more beautiful than right here, right now, overlooking this scenery. And then what came to mind was 1 Corinthians 2, 9, when Paul said, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what this means? You've never seen something as beautiful as what's going to await us in heaven. You've never heard anything as beautiful as what you're going to hear when we get to heaven. You can't even imagine how great the glories of heaven are. It is an absolute rebuke against this world that likes to portray heaven as blue skies, clouds, and angels playing harps. That's absolutely ridiculous. And you know, the, the result is that, is that, that people have this vision of heaven that's dull and bland and boring, and they're like, I don't want to go there. And now on the other hand, you have some people that are robbing the actual punishment that comes in hell right by, by saying that oh you're you're going to be absolutely destroyed and you're going to have no consciousness uh, of what's going on or, or some false denominations will say oh hell is really no different than earth is right now so if you're in hell it's really just this current earth and by robbing heaven of its glories and by robbing hell of its punishment we now have a gospel that is absolutely impotent no one wants to go to the heaven no, one wants, no one's really all that afraid of hell. Why should I believe your message? But what we see here, when we're faithful to the Bible, there are absolute riches awaiting us in heaven. And you know what? Not only that. You, you know, it's not only the treasures that are being described. It's not only these sights and sounds and things that will challenge our imaginations. But Revelation 21, verse 4, talks about how at the time of the new heavens and the new earth, that, that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain 
the first things have passed away. If you have loved ones who are going through difficult times, maybe they're suffering from a, a terminal illness of some sort, if you've lost close ones in, in your own family, maybe some close friends, you, you know what it is to grieve over that loss. You know what it is to, 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 to feel for someone who's going through so much pain. And as you age, I, most of you are very, very young. Uh, as you age, you, you will learn that things just don't work as well as they used to. Pain starts to introduce themselves in places that you couldn't have even imagined. I'm Asian, so I'm actually older than I look, I know. I can speak from experience here. Uh, when, and when you get up to heaven, I, it, these things will be taken away. They'll absolutely be taken away. But y you know what? When we look at this passage, all these things are biblical. All these truths are biblical. The treasures in heaven, the sights, the sounds, the things that will challenge your imagination, the, the freedom from pain, the freedom from death, all this is real. But you know what Paul is looking forward to? You know what Paul is looking forward to more than the treasures, more than the freedom from pain, more than all the sights and sounds and wonders? It's in verse 23. To depart from this world means to be with Christ. This is a man that just wanted to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about those rewards that we have awaiting us. Let that motivate you, but let your love for Christ be even greater than that. Let your love for Christ and, and the, the pleasure of being in just his presence, being able to worship him and glorify him, let that be the ultimate reward. And so for each of you, encourage each other with that kind of truth. Examine your own hearts for what your motivations are. You know, we, we can go to church, we can come here to ch chapel, we can be here at a Bible college, you know, we can sit under John MacArthur's preaching. But what's the reward of it all? It's Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul mentioned that the only reason why he wanted to stay was for the edification of the church, for the edification of the believers. And this leads me to the next point. We see from Paul his desires are not simply just personal or individual. His desires are for the church. And this brings us to the fourth characteristic we see of the Christian's love for Christ. The first, be that his love for Christ is stronger than personal afflictions. The second is that it is stronger than the threat of death. Third is that it is stronger than his earthly treasure. The fourth is that it is stronger with the church than without. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we get to the very first command. Up until this point, Paul has just been sharing what's been going on in his own life. He's been sharing the developments of his imprisonment and sharing how he's responding to those trials. And he's responding with joy. But now he's going to bring a commandment, the first commandment to the Philippians. And really, it is the most important commandment. How do I know that? Because the very first word in verse 27 is only. There's going to be a lot of commandments in the book of Philippians, but they can all be summarized by what we see here in verse 27. Paul is saying, look, this is all I want from you. Okay, given everything that's going on, given this update, given what I'm going through and what you're going through, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want from you. And this continues to apply to us today. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel 
in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I would remind you that Paul is not having an evangelistic rally here. He's not calling a bunch of non-believers together and pouring out the gospel. He's writing to faithful believers in Philippi. And I want to remind you that because when we think of the word gospel, we tend to think of our salvation only. We tend to think of the good news that leads us to believe in Jesus Christ and to have eternal life. And that certainly is the gospel. That certainly is very important. But what you see here in this verse is that the gospel is not just for salvation. It is for your sanctification. Because what does Paul say? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Here in Southern California, we've got some great steakhouses. Rude's Chris's. Fleming's, uh, our pastor uh, of Faith Builders, uh, Bill Shannon, had gift certificates, and he took out his wife on her birthday to, to Fleming's just uh, a couple weeks ago. And I remember they were describing to us the experience. They're saying, you know, we have this waiter there at Fleming's, and he, he's one of the greatest servants they've ever seen in a restaurant. I mean, just so attentive, so kind, so patient, explaining everything, wanting to make sure that their eating experience was the best eating experience he could make it. I mean, it was so good that they even took a business card from him and kept his name so that when they go next time, they, they wanted to be able to, to see him. But this kind of service, you would only expect this kind of service at the finest restaurants, at the finest steakhouse. You don't go there expecting McDonald's-level service. Nothing against McDonald's. I'm just saying there's a difference in quality, right? You don't go to a Rolls-Royce dealership expecting some guy in a plaid suit acting like he's selling you used cars. You expect the finest conduct, the most well-rounded, the, the, the most knowledgeable, the, the kindest, the pa most patient, attentive to all your needs. Well, brothers and sisters, we represent the greatest message ever heard in the history of mankind. And if we have the greatest message to share, should not our conduct also reflect the greatness of that message? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But while there is so much implied by this, Paul immediately, look, look, look at Paul's focus here. Paul's going to immediately focus upon the church. You, you see, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he says, whether I see you or remain absent. By the way, I love that. Because what, what he's going to command is something that the church can do without Paul. It's something that the church can do without a John MacArthur. It's something the church can do without specific individuals. All right, what, what, but what he wants from them, he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So this is the immediate application of that command. Paul says, I want you standing firm. The idea is being rooted in conviction. You are convicted over the truths, and you are immovable from those truths. But to say striving together is the idea of laboring together with one another. Okay, you're rooted in truth, but you're laboring together. 
you're laboring with your fellow brothers and sisters. But you're not just laboring for anything. You're just not rooted in any kind of conviction. Paul says this is for the faith of the gospel. So you see the word gospel mentioned twice here, and it's not being referenced to unbelievers. It's being referenced to believers. But notice also, standing firm. What does it say here? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together. He is referring to the church as a body. You know what that tells me? For those of you who call yourselves Christians, you can't live your life as a Christian apart from the body of Christ. You, you can't sanctify yourself. You can't live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ apart from the church. You are called to be together one, in one body, standing firm with one mind, striving together with one spirit for the faith of the gospel. Because when you stand together, you're much stronger as a unit than you are the sum of the individual parts. And it is a testimony to the world. Because when Paul says for the faith of the gospel, the idea is that you are a reflection of the light and the truth to those who don't know the truth, that need to hear the truth. This is for the faith of the gospel. But it's not only that. When you stand together, you embolden one another. You encourage one another. You bear one another's burdens. You show the love of Christ in each other's lives when you're going through difficult times, when you're grieving losses, when you're going through spiritual troubles. And this is going to be so important to be there for one another because as was mentioned before, this world is growing increasingly hostile. And that's why in verse 28, Paul says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be surprised when there is opposition to what you believe. When I was at UCLA, it seemed like every day there was someone on Bruin Walk, which is the main kind of walking section of UCLA. There was someone on Bruin Walk espousing his own belief of what truth is, and very commonly it was not Christian truth. And you get a lot of people talking about politics, uh, people pushing the homosexual agenda, uh, pushing the women's right agenda when it comes to abortion. You get all kinds of wrong-headed schemes being spoken of. Don't be alarmed when you see those things. And don't be alarmed when they're, when they're starting to persecute us as the church. Don't be alarmed when they start to make your lives difficult. Verse 28, this is a sign for them of their destruction. But for you, your salvation, when you stand together, when you stand firm. And then verse 29 really gives us a tremendous truth. For to you it has been granted. This word granted, it is very, very easy to overlook. This is the Greek word uh, th that's the same word as grace, except in verb form. Right? So in other words, it's been given to you by grace. The word grant is actually a pretty good word that you would be able to relate to. I mean, when you first were accepted to college, for those of you that needed financial aid, there are two types of financial aid you would seek out, right? One is loans and the other is grants. Which do you prefer? No-brainer, right? I want the grant. Hey, you, you give me money. I don't have to pay that back. I want, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fill out all the applications I can for the grants because that is free money. It's the same idea. You're getting something for free. But you know what here, when we think of getting something for free in a Christian sense, when we think about receiving something by grace, receiving something as a gift, our minds may directly go to passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
You think of our salvation. It's probably the first thing we think about. It's the first thing that most Christians would think about. And it's the first thing that the Philippians would think about, too. That's why Paul has to have this disclaimer. Look at this again. For it has been granted. It has been given by grace. It has been given to you as a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but what? Also to suffer for his sake. Suffering is a part of life that we don't necessarily look forward to, don't necessarily want. We'd rather be at peace with everyone. And certainly we should strive for that as much as possible, but let me just remind you that when you stand strong in Christ, when you are faithful to the gospel, when you are faithful to what the gospel requires of you, you will find opposition. You will find people that stand against you. You will find people that will even want to persecute you. And that's why we have to remember that that persecution is actually a good thing. We have to remember God's sovereign grace here. And, and here's the question, why, why is this a good thing? Why would I welcome something like this? Well, here at TMC, uh, I'm sure you've been exposed to many godly teachers, many humble men of God. And it's the case for us at TMS and at Grace Church. I mean, I'll tell you, we, Harry Walls mentioned the pastoral ministries class. And at first, when we signed up for the pastoral ministries class, we thought our teacher was going to be Austin Duncan. That's what it said, Austin Duncan. And then when the syllabus showed up, we saw Harry Walls. All of us as seminary students are looking at each other, who's Harry Walls? Why aren't we getting Austin Duncan, right? And then the first day, we, we sat in this class, and, and Harry Walls starts to talk to us, talks to us about the fact that wherever we go, make sure you have the desire to be there for the rest of your life. And I, I remember as he was speaking those words to us, you could see the heart of a shepherd just come out of him. Whatever concerns we had about the instructor just melted away. This was a godly man that we couldn't get enough of. We just wanted to keep, by the way, this is an encouragement. If you get a chance to get to know Harry, get to know Harry. He is a wonderful man of God, wonderful, humble, yet convicted man of God. So encouraging to, to be around him. And, and you're around people like this. You, you can think of professors like this. You can probably think of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe your mother and father, maybe older figures in your life who you look up to and it's like, wow, th there's conviction, but there's such love and gentleness and care that comes from that individual. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen overnight. That comes as a result of the trials that God will bring that will mold you and shape you. And it will mold you and shape you into becoming more Christ-like. How many of you here have ever said, I wish to be more like Christ? Right? Everyone except for some of these folks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all say that. I, I want to be more like Christ, but what was it that characterized the life of Christ? It was his suffering. Peter even tells us in 1 Peter 2.21 that Christ suffered, leaving an example for you. And even in, in chapter 3, verses 14-15 of 1 Peter, he, he says, uh, sanctified the Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The, these trials are meant to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an absolute blessing. That is an absolute honor. I mean, Paul would talk about that also in, in chapter 3 when he talks about his desire is, is to, to know Christ and, and the fellowship of his afflictions. 
So we've talked about these four points, these four characteristics of a Christian's love for Christ. The, the first was that your love for Christ is stronger than any afflictions that may come your way. You know, the second was that it is stronger than any threat of death. It, it is stronger than any earthly treasures that you have. And it is stronger together with the church than without. Now let me return back real quick to verse 21. To live as Christ and to die as gain. You realize that if you replace Christ with any other word, this sentence no longer makes sense. To live is athletics. Well, as you age, you get older, you can no longer participate in athletics. If you're a basketball fan, you know Kobe's going through his farewell tour simply because his body doesn't hold up to the pressures anymore. To, to live is athletics, to die is no more athletics. To live is wealth, right? But there's the old saying that you can't take it with you. To die is to lose all that wealth. You, you can come up with any passion you have, any obsession that you have in this world, anything that you enjoy doing, anything that you live for when you wake up in the morning, and this sentence will not make sense unless that desire is Christ. See, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But that means for all of you, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ needs to be the flame of your heart. If you've been living all this life, going to church, coming here to TMC, going to these chapels, thinking you're a Christian, but not feeling any love or desire for Christ and his purposes, then I would call for you to wake up. Because there is nothing but eternal torment that awaits those who truly does not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you've been saved, as the old saying goes, remind yourself of the gospel regularly. Cultivate that love for Christ in your heart. Let that be the motivation behind everything that you do in this life. I'll close with an illustration. I, when I was in uh, high school, I remember there was two sports I wanted to play, football and basketball. That's all I wanted. And I went to take a physical. They checked my heart, and they found out that there were some irregular heartbeats going on. I went to go see a cardiologist, and they revealed to me that it's possible that I might have some sort of virus in my heart. They're going to have to do a biopsy, you know, where they go and take a little piece and check for a virus. A and if, the, if it shows I still have a virus, I've got to go through open-heart surgery. Now, as a little teenager, that's, that's a frightening prospect. It's a frightening thought to have to go through open-heart surgery. And on top of that, my parents, who were and still are non-believers, they loved money. I mean, just like anyone else, they, they loved money. They, they, they loved to be able to have nice things in this world. They, they were very good about saving money, not going into debt so they can buy nice things and enjoy nice things, even though they were laborers and they, didn't, they, they weren't wealthy people. And my first thought when this came up was, wow, this is going to be an expensive process. Uh, my parents can't afford this. I talked to my dad, and I told him, I'm, I'm worried about how much money this is going to cost. You know what my dad said to me? He said, son, if I have to get a second or third job and work every day for the rest of my life in order to make you well, it'll be worth it. It's the first time in my life I had a tear in my eye from the love of my father. And that moment I realized that everything that he loves in this world was secondary to the love he had for me as his son. But we have to have that love for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ had that love for us. He humbled himself. He gave up his glorious position. 
he was willing to die for sins he did not commit, paying the eternal punishment at the cross on our behalf. And he did it for no other reason than to show his love, John 3.16, right? Christians, we must have the same love for Christ. And if you don't, then I would urge you to examine your hearts. Flee from your sins. Pursue Christ with all your might. Ask Christ this very moment to save you, to give you a hope that transcends all temporal realities, to give you a life that transcends all personal afflictions, to give you a desire and love for God and his church and for his gospel. And don't delay on that. Examine your hearts today. Examine your motivations. Why do you do what you do as a Christian? No motivation is sufficient aside from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to give you thanks for this morning. I want to give you thanks for this wonderful letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. What a marvelous example that we have from his life of his love for Christ, how he lived that out, even in imprisonment. Father, he rejoiced when people slandered him because Christ was proclaimed. He rejoiced even if he was going to die because Christ would be an exalted in his body as he continues to remain faithful to the gospel. And Father, he called for the church to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel as well. And it's a reminder to me that that verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain, but maybe the most beautiful words are the first three words when Paul says, but to me. This was the heartbeat of Paul. It's what drove everything he did. And Father, I know that's only possible by your power and by your spirit. And I pray for all of us here today that we too would have the same testimony, that we would be able to examine our hearts and recognize that everything in this life should be about Christ and that we can look forward to a life of gain with him. Father, bless everyone here. I pray that you would make your name great in all that they would do. And I pray that they would continue to grow into the image of your son in whatever way you plan to bring it about. And Father, we lift these things up in the name of your son and all of God's people say,